If you haven't been with us uh, last couple of weeks, we, uh, we've been focusing our attention on the Tribulation Temple. And uh, the Tribulation Temple would be the temple that presently the Jews in Israel, in particular the religious Jews, the ultra-Orthodox Jews primarily, are ready and wanting to, to build. It is called the Third Temple, following that of Solomon. And, uh, and then Herod's Temple. Of course, we know that in between Solomon and Herod's Temple, there was a rebuilt uh, temple, and that was uh, Oftentimes it's called Zerubbabel's uh, temple, which was built a few years after the destruction of Solomon's temple in 586 BC. And it was after the uh, captivity in Babylon that the Jews that were allowed to return back after Cyrus and the Persians had conquered Babylon and allowed the Jews to come home to their land. They were also allowed not only to build or rebuild the temple, and really it was more than anything build, you know, putting stone upon stone uh, since it had been utterly destroyed and wasn't a pretty temple at all. And then eventually, of course, would come the renovation of that which became the second temple, which is Herod's, many, many years later. About 20 BC uh, was when Herod redesigned that. What we've been focusing on in the last couple of weeks has been uh, an alternate view of where the temple would stand. The traditional view is, of course, that the temple has to be where Solomon's and Herod's temple stood. And the traditional site for that is called the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And I'll show you all a picture of that in just a moment. But uh, there have been those who have responded relatively uh, out of necessity in thinking of the lateness of the time that, uh, that it is and, and that there is this one major dilemma that's taking place in Israel today and especially in Jerusalem today and that is that the Temple Mount upon which they believe the temple needed to stand and needs to stand is right now occupied by the uh, Islamic, and it's really a Jordanian Islamic uh, council called the Waqf, W-A-Q-F. And they've been pretty much in control of the Temple Mount area for a long time, even before 1948, actually. 
But uh, that's the major dilemma is here, here there is this gold dome of the rock called the Mosque of Omar and not far from there on top of that mound is, is also a, a real mosque called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And both of them are there on that particular property. And they're very, and, and the, uh, the Arab Islamics are, are, are very protective of that area. We've talked a lot about it already. And there are those who have, have actually researched the idea that quite possibly the temple didn't really stand on the Temple Mount at all. And that in first and foremost looking at the scriptures, we found that there were a number of references and are a number of references to the fact that the temple itself was built in the city of David about 600 yards or feet, <laughs> some say feet, others say yards, but 600 yards south of the southern wall of what is called the Temple Mount. And excavations are going on right now, uh, led by an Israeli archaeologist named Eli Shukron. And he has been finding uh, in certain private excavations that are taking place, the public is not allowed to go into these areas, uh, even though you can take a tour of the city of David and you actually go by where they're making or they're doing some of these excavations. And of course, again, they're close to the public because their findings are, are amazing in the fact that they are indeed finding rooms that measure to the rooms that would have been Solomon's temple. And uh, I was doing a little bit more research on, on Elishu Kron and, and some of the other things that he has uh, excavated in that same area of the city of David and uh, has found what he believes to be the stone upon which Jacob actually laid his head in the book of Genesis, chapter 28. And in his thinking, it would be exactly the place where worship is required of God. We know that, of course, uh, that Jacob wrestled with an angel that was really the angel of the Lord, that we might as well say that he was wrestling with Jesus himself. And it was there in that very same area, which most Jews believe would be Mount Moriah, which we've also mentioned in our, in our studies here recently, as the area where the temple would be for what purpose? for the purpose of worship. And what do we know that Jacob did? He worshiped God there. You can go back and read Genesis 28 and realize the, the tremendous wordings that, uh, that you see there that would say, this is an interesting place because this is where God 
wants to be worshipped. And this is exactly what he says about Mount Zion, the mountain of the Lord. We've touched on all of these things. I'm just kind of trying to give a, a review of where we've been. I've tried to be open-minded about this whole issue because when you go to Israel, and we've gone many times and, and stood on the Mount of Olives on a very special place where they've, they've made that you can actually see the eastern gate of this wall of the old city. And uh, all of us who have, have, passed, have taken our, 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 our people there have, have, as, as pastors have, have said, well, if, if this is the gate, this is the gate that Jesus is going to go through. Those bricks that are filling up the gate, they're not going to be there for very long when Jesus lands on the Mount of Olives because we're told that in the book of Zechariah. And that the Kidron Valley that stands right below you, before, between you and, and the gate, that whole valley is going to open wide. And in our study of the book of, of Ezekiel, what we learn in chapters 40, and, and we're now getting ready to move on from chapter 43, as we'll get, be getting back there here very shortly, uh, next week actually, about 44. But as we learned at the onset of these last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel, the whole topography changes when the millennial temple, which is the Messiah or messianic temple, which is the temple that Jesus will be uh, ruling from for a thousand years, is finally built by Jesus himself on a different level above all mountains, above all hills in the area, and it'll be a much bigger area. We, again, talked about all of these things. <clears throat> and so it's, it's exciting, you know, to see these things happening. But when you go to the city of David and you begin to realize that you, every time you drive into the city of Jerusalem and see the Dome of the Rock Mosque, you're, 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 you're seeing, you know, the, the influence still of Islam there. I talked about how Moshe Dayan, when the Israeli Defense Forces moved into the city of Jerusalem and took the Temple Mount from the Jordanians, they actually climbed all the way to the top of that dome and put the Israeli flag upon it. And it was not soon after that, next day, that he went and met with the waqf, the Islamic Council. And they conferred over what was going on. And when he came back down, he told them to take the flag down and left the Temple Mount in the hands of the Islamic Council. Now, Biblically speaking and prophetically speaking, that was allowed by God. Primarily for one major reason. Because the time of the Gentiles has not yet been fulfilled. And I'll have to tell you, Moshe Dayan, being a relatively uh, unbelieving Jew, would not have mattered. It would not have mattered whatsoever to him. I think in his own diary or his own uh, memoirs and all, 
you know, he, he, he was more of a, a secular Jew, really, than, than a, a religious Jew. He was more political, in a sense, in his, his motions and movements and actions than, than he was one to, to read the Bible and do whatever it said. But it worked in the sense that the time of the Gentiles hasn't been fulfilled. We'll, we'll get to that verse tonight as well. So I'm, I'm just kind of laying out a, a, a little bit of a, of, a review, of a review of where we've been, for those of you who haven't been with us. And tonight, we're, we're, I'm going to mention that there are certainly uh, a lot of good uh, views that continue to keep the hope of the Temple Mount being the place where the, where the, um, where the temple will be rebuilt. Um, they're good views, but we have to consider that there are not a lot of views that are based on as much scripture as we've been seeing about the alternative view. But in the end, we're going to realize that God knows where he is going to put it. And then when he puts it, he puts it. You got it? So why, what, what is the importance then of this study? The importance of it is that we realize that the day is coming and it's short that all these things are going to come to pass and all these things are going to happen. And I tell you what, if, when you've been to Israel, you, you sense this, there's a buzz, you know. Um, I'm not saying that's a spiritual thing, but there's a buzz going around, <laughs> most, most, mostly by the Israelis themselves and, and, and that, the religious Jews. They're, they're crying for Messiah. They're ready for Messiah now. They have songs about Messiah, but their Messiah is in Jesus. Yet the scriptures tell us that when Jesus comes, they will know who he is. They will finally realize that their Messiah is the one whom they pierced. And they'll weep because of missing the mark of who their Messiah was. Tonight I want to begin in Mark chapter 7, if you will, turn there to verse 5. And I'm going to be really good now that I have control here of, of, <laughs> of the video presentation. We'll start on Mark chapter 7, verse 5. And then when we're done with that and 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 15, you can ask to yourself the question, why did we study these verses? Why, why did we read these verses? Mark 7, verse 5, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders? Please underline the word tradition in your Bibles. Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashen hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Esaias, which is Isaiah, prophesied of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart 
is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, underlying the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, underlying the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things you do. And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition. I don't have to tell you anymore, but you know which words underlie. <laughs> For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But you say, If a man shall say to his father or mother, It is korban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And you suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered, and many such like things do ye. What was the emphasis of what Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees? You're more concerned about your traditions than you are the commandment of God or the word of God. Turn now, if you will, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we, and this is Paul speaking and, and writing to the Thessalonians, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, Brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. I'm going to show you a really neat thing. You ready? Underlying belief of the truth. Did that come out up here? Yeah? You're up here. You see it? You can't see it real well up here. Kind of, sort of, but I've got a fancy little thing. I'm really like high tech now. Just call me El High Tech. So, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through, notice, sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Wow. Neato, huh? Whereunto, verse 14, whereunto he called you by our gospel... There's another word to underline or phrase, our gospel. To the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold, notice, and hold the traditions which you have been taught. Oh, now Paul uses the word traditions here. 
whether by word, notice that word there, word, or our epistle. Interesting. Traditions. But based on what, you see? We're going to deal with those verses in just a minute. I chose this picture because it shows you the Dome of the Rock and uh, the Western Wall. It's an early time because the Jews are just getting down to the wall. Normally by midday it's packed in that whole area there. To the right, we're right behind those uh, palm trees. Uh, there is, uh, looks like construction there, but actually there's a ramp that goes up to the entrance to the Temple Mount. Some of us have actually been up there. It just depends on whether the, the Muslims want you to come up or not. Some days they'll close it, other days they'll open it. So anyway, with all that in mind, you may be wondering then what these passages have to do with the coming Tribulation Temple. Well, our first studies, as we've talked a little bit about, which challenged the long-standard tradition that the first two temples in Jerusalem were built on the existing Temple Mount where today stands that Islamic Dome of the Rock, examined a certain number of scriptural references pertaining to the location of Solomon's and subsequently Herod's temple, the first and the second temples. Now, from the onset of our study, of the present-day preparations for the third temple to be built for the coming of the Jewish people's Messiah. Remember I said, they're waiting for Messiah, but to them, it's not going to be Jesus. I wanted to be clear that we needed to get our reference points for its location from the scriptures itself, simply because it is traditionally held that the only place for the temple would be the Temple Mount. The most focused upon and the most potentially volatile place in all the earth. Many, many people believe today that it is going to be right there that World War III starts on the Temple Mount. And we spoke about the illegitimate claims that Islam places on the importance of what they call Haram al-Sharif and how ironic it is that they hold control of this real estate presently. But could it be possible? And again, this is a question we've asked over the last three weeks. Could it be possible that this location is not the original location? Is it possible that the true Temple Mount may be some 600 feet or 600 yards south of the traditional Temple Mount size? It's really closer to 600 feet, actually. In the city of David, also called Zion, now, if you didn't get, uh, if you didn't get the, uh, the uh, handout from last week, I have all the scriptures that you need uh, to, to see the, uh, what we pulled out of scripture, which is, in other words, the verses that, that deal with the city of David, that deal with Mount Moriah, that deal with uh, the temple uh, of Solomon being built in, and in a place where there was a threshing floor, if you remember, the threshing floor of Ornan, which David purchased 
And that would be, have been the site from Second Chronicles chapter 3, the site where Solomon was going to build the temple. By the way, there's no threshing floor on the Temple Mount, just so you'll know. So challenging the tradition has become the monumental task for someone named Robert Cornuke. Some of you have probably heard of Bob Cornuke or Robert Cornuke, a biblical archaeologist who has also searched for Noah's Ark in Turkey and in Iran. He's searched for the real Mount Sinai and got arrested by <laughs> the Saudis when he was in, in that land. Got arrested in Iran, too. He's, you know, he's a former police officer, so it's kind of interesting for him to get, be getting arrested all over the place. Uh, he was also the one who, who went on a search for the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia. And then, of course, he has searched for the true location of Calvary or Golgotha, the site of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, based on earlier research done by Ernest Martin, uh, Cornuke, the author of, of a book called Temple, Amazing Discoveries That Change Everything About the Location of Solomon's Temple, has spent a considerable amount of time in Jerusalem researching this, this subject from every angle and, and approach, at times facing tremendous opposition by those who regard tradition to be enough to maintain the view that there can be no other place but the Temple Mount. Now, in a video produced by Chuck Missler's Koinonia House, Cornuke interviewed a number of Hasidic Jews at the Western Wall to get an idea of how they would handle a challenge to their tradition. And in the video, there was an older Hasidic Jew who told Cornuke this, and I quote, he said, on the other side of, the, of this wall stood the first temple and the second temple. I'm speaking of the Western Wall. They were destroyed. The third temple, when Messiah comes, will come here on the other side of the wall. And we're told that God's revealed presence, now listen carefully what he says, and we're told that God's revealed presence never left these stones from the time of the temples till now. Did you get that? The presence, the revealed presence of God never left these stones. Remember, it's a retaining wall. The question is, was that retaining wall built by Herod or was it built by the Romans later? That's, that's a major question. We didn't even bring that up last week, but it is a question. They believe that it was a retaining wall that was built by Herod. And then he goes on and says this, and that's what we feel. That's what we feel when we come here, God's revealed presence, end quote. There was another older Hasidic Jew who would tell him, this is the holiest place we have right now. The third temple is going to come right here. There's no doubt. No doubt. He repeated himself. Now, Cornuke also spoke to a number of young Hasidic Jews, and he asked them a question. The question was this. If I told you that in the fourth century there were four 
places rabbis were suggesting for the temple. Four different locations in the fourth century. Would you believe me? And by the way, that's written historically of, uh, in fourth century rabbinic writings. Well, one of those young Hasidic Jews answered, no, I wouldn't believe you. Then he said, our tradition, authoritative tradition wins out and we go with what we have. We don't do our own thing. We don't make our own assumptions. We have what we have. If we don't have what our parents and rabbis gave us, we have nothing. I said, wow. So what do you have? A tradition. You have a tradition. The first older man, the first one that I quoted earlier, also said this. He said, before somebody can come along and change what has already been established, they are going to have to be greater than those who established it. So this is their thinking. There was another guy, there was another guy that Cornuke approached and, and uh, talked to him a little bit. And the guy, the, 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 the man said, are you a Jew? He says, and, and Cornuke said, no. He said, well, I, I, I don't want to have, I don't want to lose time. I don't want to waste time with you. <laughs> Walked away. Didn't want to talk about it. And that's probably more uh, of what people would, would respond to these kinds of, of, of questions. So now you get a good reason why the verses I, I chose to begin with have some relevance in our study for today. You see, the word tradition is found 14 times in the scriptures. 14 times. And the majority of them are in a, may I say, a negative context, if you will. As in, Mark, in, in the Mark passage that we read earlier. And, the, and then the reason for, for using the, the 2 Thessalonians 2 passage was to show a, pro, a pattern for a proper tradition. A pattern for a proper tradition. Notice, if you will, in 2 Thessalonians, going back to 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 13. Second uh, Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, you compare that, or contrast, if you will, that to what Jesus said to the uh, to the scribes and the Pharisees who were confronting him that his own disciples were not following tradition in the washing of their hands. And Jesus tells them, you're more concerned about your traditions. And of course he uses a, a passage of scripture from the Old Testament that talks about their hearts being far from them. Oh, they observe certain things, but their hearts are far from them. In their worship, in their simple worship to God, their hearts were far from, from the Lord. Paul, on the other hand, 
He says, stand fast and hold the traditions. Now, we have to be careful how that's used here because, you see, for example, in the Catholic Church, they will use this particular verse of Scripture to say, listen, you know, we have traditions. You need to hold on to these traditions. And then the traditions have, have to do with everything that, you know, either are laid out by the Pope and, and you know, by the cardinals and by, you know, catechisms and by... Um, you know, as, as we learned many, many years ago, the, the precepts of Vatican I and Vatican II, and, and uh, I've got all kinds of other names for it, but, but it's like that's the traditions that Paul was talking about. But, but in fact, that's not what Paul was dealing with. That's not what Paul was talking about. He said, hold fast the traditions which you've been taught, whether by word, which is logos. By the way, that word is logos. If you remember John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. That's Jesus. That's the Word of God made flesh, John 1, 14. So the word used here for traditions is the Greek word paradosis, which means the transmission of an ordinance or a precept. The transmission of an ordinance or a precept. The context of Paul's message is clear. The traditions he wanted them to hold begins, or the traditions that he wanted them to hold begins with God's sovereignty in our salvation and continues with belief in the truth. It begins with God's sovereignty because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And the truth being the Word of God. Now that's a wonderful tradition to have, which is to be led by the Word of God. To be stayed upon the Word of God. To stand upon the Word of God. To believe and trust in the Word of God. To obey the Word of God. The Lord then called them by, gospel, by the gospel that Paul preached, which was what? The word of God. And which came by the word, logos, and by his letter, which was spirit-inspired. And those are the traditions that we need to hold to steadfast, uh, we need to hold on to steadfastly because they are centered completely in the Word of God. Now I, want you, I want to remind you of something. Remember that all of this came forth because a false letter sent in Paul's name to the church in Thessalonica deceived them. And it was in the same chapter, by the way, the early part of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, that someone sent a false letter in Paul's name in the church of Thessalonica deceiving them into thinking that the day of the Lord, the tribulation, was at hand. When Paul said, no, it wasn't. You go back to the first letter and you look at the first, uh, you look at the fourth chapter where he talks about the rapture of the church, that he talks about what was to come, and then of course he talks about it even more because of what had happened in that they were trying to actually discredit Paul by sending a letter of this sort. 
So that was the contradiction to what Paul taught them in 1 Thessalonians, was this letter. So what I want to say here is that Christians may possibly hold two similar traditions, even as the Jews that we saw, or that I saw in this particular video in some cases, and specifically maybe doing so with respect to the temple location. We just say it's the temple location because, well, that's what everybody else says. And that's, where, that's, that's what we've been taught. And still, there are, some, there are some very good arguments for the, the Temple Mount location. I mentioned one last week, which I didn't think was a very good argument because it had too much assumption in it. Too much assumption that somehow the, the, uh, the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 were, were going to be very decisive in getting uh, the Antichrist to agree with uh, uh, the uh, walk of, you know, that control the Temple Mount uh, to agree, with the, you know, to bring down the Temple or, or the uh, Dome of the Rock so that they can build the Temple there. Uh, and I thought that's a lot of assumption uh, that is, first of all, not really from the Scripture. Not, you know, this is something you have to assume. It's just, it's not just something that is already there uh, clearly for us to see. Uh, one such argument, if we can call it an argument, is based on history. And again, it pertains to the current occupiers of the Temple Mount. The Supreme Muslim Religious Council that controls religious activities and policies all activities, uh, or I should say polices all activities on the Temple Mount. Fulfilling that prophecy that I mentioned earlier in Luke chapter 21 verse 24 that says and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations and that is speaking of course the Jews and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So that is one of the arguments for the Temple Mount that you know uh, Jerusalem has to be trampled down of the Gentiles until that time is fulfilled and it's not fulfilled yet. So they're still on the Temple Mount and this is a, a, a clear indication that they are the Gentiles of that place specifically and not to mention that uh, the time of the Gentiles is, is really more in, in line with keeping the scriptures uh, or the scriptural uh, reference of the gospel going out into all the world that all, you know, and, and once, once the gospel has reached as, as God wants it to reach, then comes uh, the beginning of the end, as it were. And then another dilemma that is being solved in this generation is the reestablishment of the Levitical priesthood and the reconvening of the long dormant Sanhedrin court, the highest body of Jewish lawmakers. Now, the last time we were at the uh, uh, the Temple Mount Institute uh, in, in Jerusalem, uh, there was some mention. And actually before that, uh, when, they, when they had live people talking to you, now they have these, you know, you sit in a room like you're at Disneyland and then, you know, they come on and they play these videos and you sit there and watch it. Then you go into another room and then you sit down and watch another video. You know, they, they've kind of become high tech just like me, but, uh, but, but I'm still live and real, you know. And uh, 
But anyway, when they had people that, were, that would answer questions, uh, that was one of the questions that was asked, and, and one of the things that was, say, was, was stated was, uh, isn't there is there going to be a Sanhedrin? And of course there is. And they're preparing all of these things. They're, I mean, they're not, they're not leaving one stone untouched, you know. They're, they're lifting every, I mean, they're, they're looking into every little detail. They have every detail that they need, and they're working on even getting the, the pure red heifer that is required in, in the sacrifices. So this, this is what they're doing. But here there is this need for the Sanhedrin court uh, to exist. And the Sanhedrin is the only religious body authorized to determine the correct location of the temple, to reinstitute the ancient rituals, and to oversee the many details related to temple ritual and worship. It probably goes without saying that those who will be selected to be on, uh, in the Sanhedrin court will hold to the traditional, uh, the traditional location. And will probably cite Flavius Josephus. And they'll cite his calculated distance from the Temple Mount to the Mount of Olives. When you, when you read uh, this historian, you realize that he... He laid out a, a, a length of, of, of steps or paces, which in the scriptures is called a Sabbath day journey between the Mount of Olives and the entrance into the city or into the old city of Jerusalem or the Temple Mount, as it were. And on that note, it's interesting that Josephus is quoted as having seen the complete destruction of the temple, which I quoted uh, last week and the week before. Uh, the, the complete destruction of the temple, he saw it. Josephus did. Saw the complete destruction of the temple as Jesus described it would happen. And there is support to this in contrast to the, to, to the tradition. There is support in contrast to the tradition citing what we had read earlier, not, not today, but uh, last week, in Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. So I'd like for you to go back to Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. And there's a couple of things that we do need to notice here in this text. Notice that Jesus went out and departed from the temple. You all see that part? I've underlined it for you. And his disciples came to him. So we don't really want to look at the English punctuation here. The English punctuation is, is, is primarily just trying to be grammatical or grammatic and use the proper punctuation in English. What we need to understand is what Jesus did was he left the temple, departed away from the temple, and his disciples then came to him wherever he was after that to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, if he's at the temple, like most people think, 
He's, he's, he's departing from the temple, but he's probably still close enough that they said, look how magnificent this temple is. Most people think that what Jesus was doing was standing there looking just at this structure that we call the temple sanctuary, the place where the Holy of Holies is. For him to say in the next verse, and Jesus said unto them, see ye not all these things. Now, Mark clearly what he says, all these things, not just this thing, this temple, but all these things. What does that tell you? That, tell you? that tells you now there's a different perspective from where he is to the temple. He said, verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Went a little early there. So again, under closer scrutiny, something that is usually passed over has to be, take, has to be given that second look. So what is the perspective now? If Jesus is away from the temple area proper, then he is obviously in a position to speak of the entire temple area and all of its auxiliary buildings and, and sacrificial staging areas, everything, not just the temple sanctuary. Now, two, two authors of books relating to the next temple to be built in Jerusalem, and both really good prophecy uh, students. One is Don Stewart. Some of you may remember Don Stewart. I think he still does some of the uh, uh, programs. He used to do some programs with Pastor Chuck from Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And uh, also uh, another book written by a man named Grant Jeffrey. And they've written some very, uh, very powerful uh, prof prophecy books on the last days. But uh, they've referred to the temple area to Temple Mount area exclusively from both the historic and present day activities in preparation for the building of the third temple. Now both refer to the major obstacle that is posed to the Israelis. And that of course is the Dome of the Rock, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and the whole of the Temple Mount area being under Islamic control. Now Grant Jeffrey in his book, The New Temple and the Second Coming, it's really a great book, I really like it. The New Temple and the Second Coming offers an alternate view in that while he believes the Dome of the Rock may not be in the exact location of Solomon's temple. See, his view is, okay, the Dome of the Rock, everybody considers that to be the, the exact place. So, so most people try to draw, you know, they, they try to get a plan that uh, that you place right above it, you know, like on those overhead views that I've shown you last couple of weeks. But he proposes that the temple could be built on the Temple Mount, prop, uh, on the Temple Mount property north of the Dome of the Rock in a relatively open area, actually placing it much closer to the Eastern Gate. So his idea is to move it to the north, and, and when you get a, a picture of of the Temple Mount area, as we've shown many of them. And, uh, but in any event, 
there's, there's some open areas there. And you would say, well, you know, they, they can share. We're always telling people, you know, you, you tell your kids, right? you share with someone, you know. I can share. You think they're going to share? I don't know. Let's see what the Antichrist can do, because it's going to be his, his situation here. But uh, the, uh, the temple could be built on this, this particular part. The negotiations between the Antichrist and the Jewish people in the first half of the tribulation period could lead to that agreement without the removal of the dome. They don't have to remove the dome. Uh, they say, okay, look, if this is what we're going to do, all right, we'll give them this little area. Remember the dimensions of Solomon's temple is not as big as we think. Doesn't require a whole lot. Back when we were teaching in the book of Revelation a couple of years ago, I, I mentioned that statement, that the possibility exists. They could put a temple there and not get in anybody's way and allow the Jews to do their sacrifices. It's still hard to think that the Arabs or the Islamists, Islamists are going to allow that. But then again, hey, what happens when Antichrist comes? And we'll talk about the timing of that here in just a moment. And then Don Stewart in his book, The Jews, Jerusalem, and the Next Temple, which is another great book, by the way, does not specify directly that one alternative is better than the other, but what he does is he states four options for the location where it may have stood. First of all, he, he mentions the Dome of the Rock site, which means where the Dome of the Rock is, that's where the temple needs to be. And then he says, secondly, that there's 106 meters north and west of the dome, which is Jeff, uh, Jeffrey's location, the, the one north uh, in an open area. He mentions a third location, which is between the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. That's an interesting place to put a temple, but some people believe that would be a good place to put it because it's an open area. It's actually in, in, the, uh, in the area of, um, of a fountain. And um, I think it's called the Temple of the, of the Spirits there. Yeah, anyway, so they might want, they might, they, they, some, some people believe that's where the temple really was. And then uh, fourthly, the ancient city of David. He does mention the ancient city of David. Actually, both of them do. Both Jeffrey and uh, Stuart mention the uh, possibility that it could be in the city of David. But uh, Don Stewart writes this. He says, it is presently impossible, presently impossible to do any excavating on the mountain. That's true. It is impossible to do any kind of excavating. I, I did uh, listen to one person who had talked about uh, some excavation that took place I'm thinking it was back in uh, the, either the uh, middle 80s or early 90s. I, I should have written it down. But uh, there was some kind of excavation that had been done on the Temple Mount uh, by, the, uh, by the Arabs. And what they did was they took all of the, the, uh, you know, the debris and they put it out into, uh, uh, out into the, the valley, uh, kind of the uh, Hinnom Valley where we're all the junk and trashes and stuff. And uh, uh, he was talking about a, a group of Israelis that got together to go through that. And they were allowed by the government to go through all that debris to find. And they were mentioning that they found a lot of, a lot of uh, artifacts, you know, but 
I, I listened as carefully as I could to say, well, what are the artifacts? And, uh, a few things were mentioned, some coins and stuff dating back uh, 2,600 years or whatever, uh, which is quite possible it could have been up there. Don't, don't forget that if, if this particular alternative view is, 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 is true, then, well, the Romans had all kinds of uh, things on there because if you remember the Temple Mount, if the city of David is the place location for the temple, then the, the mount would have been the whole area uh, that was reserved for the fortress of the uh, Roman legion, which was 6,000 people and 4,000 supporting uh, people. So anyway, where we're going with all of this. He says, it is presently impossible to do any excavating on the mount. The various theories proposed as to where the temple originally stood each have their adherents. Only time will tell which theory is correct. Only time will tell. And in reality, that's what we have. We have a little time, but one thing that we do have also is we have a lot of scripture. And I have to say that there were many years ago, over 40 years ago, when I first read, actually over 45 years ago, when I first read um, Hal Lindsey's book, The, Great, the Late Great Planet Earth. How many of you remember that? Uh, just the old people? Okay. <laughs> just kidding. Well, you know, it really drew an interest in, in prophetic themes and issues for me, but, uh, you know, there were a lot of things back then that we, we really couldn't cement down. I mean, we couldn't really hold, you know, these things down because you know, we would read about ten nation, a ten-nation confederacy, so we said, well, there's ten nations in Europe, and uh, we could number a certain number of, of, of nations in Europe, and there were about ten, you know, and then all of a sudden came, the, you know, the different European common market, European this, European that, Euro, you know, and so now we have the European thing, whatever, which is over 27 nations, 20 nine eight or whatever it is now lost count anyway so you got all these things so you now you have to go back to the you know you have to go back to the drawing board you know and and uh, kind of think well okay what is it now is it 10 regions of the world or whatever you know so things are still work being worked out in some cases but let me just say this in those days we did not realize the impact that islam was going to have in the last days People did not talk about Islam that much. All the Jews, I mean, the Arabs were there. Of course they were there. They gave Israel a hard time, but they've been doing that for thousands of years. And they would just be after them and be after them and be after them. But we, did, we weren't looking at it from the standpoint of how impacting is, Islam was going to be in the last day scenario. So that was another thing that many years ago we didn't really see happen. So things do change, and time does tell. But now when Islam arises, and then things, and becomes more specifically like, um, like ISIS, and what we've seen them do in the last few years. See, 40, think about this, 40 years ago, we talked about beheadings, then all of a sudden people were drawing pictures of, of bringing out the old French guillotines, you know? And then, this is how they're gonna, they're gonna chop your heads off, you know? But then we get to the modern day and there's ISIS using what? 
swords just like they did in the Old and New Testament, cutting Christians' heads off and other people's heads off too. Just as the Bible had predicted would be happening. But now it's happening just as in the days of the Bible. You see, if we don't come back to the Bible, we don't come back to the truth. So notice that, that I haven't given many scriptural references in proposing a Temple Mount location for the next temple. They use the same scriptures in a way. There, are, there also aren't many strong references to the necessity for a water source except for the 60 or so cisterns under the Temple Mount wall, uh, uh, wall and, sur and surrounding area. We talked about that last week. The Gihon Springs in the city of David, though, was the perfect water source. Flowing water, constant flowing water for sacrifice. I agree with Don Stewart that only time will tell which theory is correct, but, the, but Scripture has given us a lot to think about as the references point us to a city of David location for the temple. And by the way, there are still a lot of resources that consider the Temple Mount. Good researchers just wanting to come to the truth. So that possibility we can't just throw out. There can be some truth to, to, to that. But I have to leave you with one more thing to think about. And again, an issue of perspective from the Word of God. The, the last scripture reference that may lead us to see that the city could be the city of David could be the location. Turn to Acts chapter 21, if you will. Acts chapter 21. I'm going to begin reading in verse 27. What I'm, what I'm sharing with you is, is the Apostle Paul coming into Jerusalem and uh, meeting with the, uh, with the church, meeting with uh, the leaders of, of the church in Jerusalem. It says, when the seven days were almost ended, and this is the time when he had, he had gone in for purification as a Jew, he went to the temple for purification. Just read the few verses before this. I just, I'm just trying to shorten, shorten the, the example. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Already Paul is being misrepresented and lied about. And further, he said, and further brought Greeks also into the temple. Paul would not have done that. There was an area for the Gentiles. That's where they would have gone. Paul knew that. Hey, Paul had been a Pharisee, yet he respected the law of God. So they're saying, this is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. What place? The temple. And further brought Greeks also into the temple and has polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city. Notice, not at the temple, in the city, 
Trophimus, an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. That, folks, is supposition, presupposition. They supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple simply because he was with Paul. And all the city was moved, and the people ran together. And they took Paul and drew him out of the temple. And forthwith the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, they're getting ready to murder him. Tidings came unto the chief captain of the band, that is, of the Romans, by the way. Tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. What were the Romans going to do there? Why were the Romans above the temple mount? To keep peace and to, to, to bring down revolts. This looked like a revolt. Now, take notice. Who immediately took soldiers and centurions and, notice, ran down unto them. Ran down unto them. Where was the temple? Where were the Romans? It's very clear. By the way, to run down, I, I looked it up in the Greek. You know what it means? They ran down. They, they ran down into the temple area. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. I mean, they were just whacking him, beating Paul. They were playing whack-a-Paul. They were hurting him. They were ready to kill him. They ran down. That wouldn't have been the case if that little place called Antonia's Fortress in the northwest corner of, of the Temple Mount was where they came from. They wouldn't have run down. The picture is very clear. That's why I was saying that run down doesn't mean just, you know, kind of got out of the barrack and just jumped out at them. No, they had to run down. They, it's an in, there was an incline. They were above. Remember, the Romans always had high ground over their enemies. And so I leave you with that. Consider, if you will, by the way, we come back now to a little bit of, a, of an idea of what the millennial temple of Jesus may look like. But we know that whatever Jesus himself builds will be perfect and wonderful, awesome, and Hard to believe that anybody could even think of what Jesus can build the way that he does.